verses 25 through 33. It can, be found, it can be found on page 903 in your blue pew Bibles. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I come from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of God. I'm always really happy that we print the order of worship. I'm thrilled that you get to go home and read these songs uh, over and over. I guarantee if you'll read them, there'll be words in there you'll have to look up in the dictionary. You'll go, what? I haven't heard that word before. Uh, I was stopped when I looked at the start of Psalm 130. Did you, did you see this? Uh, Psalm 130, from the depth of woe, written with words, uh, Martin Luther. And I thought, wait a minute, I didn't know he wrote a psalm. Uh, we've got a big opinion of Martin Luther around here, but certainly not a psalm writer, right? Uh, and one of the things that we have noted um, in youth group of late, and Despina was speaking about this last Sunday, is that God is the one who is the writer of his word. And when you read a psalm like Psalm 130, it's kind of shocking to go, wow, God wrote that so that we would use those very words to come and plead with him, so that we would have confidence that he hears us from the depths of our woe. And you go, no one in this room knows the depths of my woe. Well, Martin Luther didn't write that. The God who created you wrote that. And I just don't want you to leave today thinking that no one here knows the depth of your woe. Because the God who created you put that in His words so that you and I would use those words to praise Him. Almost every song we sang is about prayer. I'm always just... I am so humbled by Nathan Glenister and his ability to get to the point of the scripture that's ahead of us. Because our scripture today is about prayer and this entire worship service is oriented toward prayer. It's to that place in prayer that I wanna invite you to come with me now. And I wanna ask you the question, do you believe what you sang in this other song that were a grief I could not bear, didst thou not hear and answer prayer, but a prayer hearing, answering God 
supports me under every load. You sang it. Now will you come with me and pray? Father, we praise you uh, that you have called us to yourself today. Father, we like to think that we have sacrificed a great deal to be here today. We made the choice to come. Uh, we know many who have made choices to be elsewhere, and, and, and part of our mind and our hearts, we're so broken that we begin to compare ourselves with other people's choices, and, and pride just becomes welled up in us. And we said, we're going to give him one more chance. We're going to give this church one more shot to see if there's anything spoken here that has anything to do with me. And yet, Father, you have said that everything in our lives is oriented around your work in our lives. And that stops us to think that you are that sovereign, that you are that in control, that down to the division of cells, you orchestrate and are in charge of everyone, that nothing passes your care and your notice. Father, all the more reason why it shocks us that you wrote in the psalm that Mita read, that shortest phrase that maybe some of us, all we can get out is, help me. Jesus, you know that cry for help. You have known it deeper than we have. You have um, sweat the drops of blood, as it were, um, crying out for deliverance. Lord Jesus, you are the one who has borne all of God's wrath so that we who have put our faith in you may believe that we are not condemned and that when we resound with a loud amen, we say, that's true. I'm not condemned. Father, would you show us that you are a God who loves to take sinners and forgive them. Father, would you move us in our hearts to come and confess to you? Father, we want so quickly to judge someone else in this room. But we pray that we would sit underneath your judgment of forgiven for just a few minutes. And that we would hear from you that that hour of the cross redefines the way we come into your presence. Father, we are amazed at how good you are to us. We are amazed at your love. We are amazed that you draw us to yourself. Father, I ask you, please don't let any woman or man in this room get stuck in the words of my mouth. But Father, would they be led by Your Spirit through Your Word into prayer to You and even now? Father, please lead Your people to worship now so that that transformation that we all long for, that we all need, begins to happen now in Your presence. Father, we're thankful that this is not static, but this is dynamic. 
These minutes are the minutes that you use to make us different women and men, to show us the glories of Christ. So please, would you do that now? And would it be for your glory? Because you are a God who hears us and who knows us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are to the end of Jesus' conversation with his disciples in the upper room. And if you've paid any attention to the book of John in the last three years, uh, this is a big moment because Jesus says today, the hour has come. And we've been waiting for that hour since the very second chapter of the book of John when Mary asks Jesus to help without the fact or with the wedding where there is not enough wine, right? And Jesus says, woman, what does, has, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And from there, all the way to now, a close reading of John makes you wonder, what is that hour? Well, the hour has come. You get to hear it today. You get to see what Jesus is talking about. And he says that one of the things that recognition of this hour will do for us is it'll change the way that we pray. And so I wanted to start this sermon off with this simple question. What do you pray for? Seriously, what if you had a pencil and you took just a moment to write down on that order of worship in front of you, what do I pray for? What do you pray for? Well, if I'm honest... And I want to try to be honest in front of you. If I'm honest, I wrote down three things this week. I pray for stuff. <laughs> Do you pray for stuff? Man, I remember this VeggieTales and Madame Booberry who collected all the stuff that her treehouse would fall over with all the stuff. I'm a little shocked in my own heart that I pray for stuff. But you want to know something? I pray for stuff. You want to know what else I pray for? I pray for outcomes. I pray for outcomes of situations in this life. And I pray also for relief from suffering. I, you know, raise a hand of your heart if you pray, pray, pray for relief from suffering. Do you pray for that? What else do you pray for? What do you pray for? That is what Jesus is pushing his disciples toward today. There's context for this, right? Let's remember where we've been since chapter 13. This is all one episode at this upper room. I often wonder what people are feeling like when they leave our house after an evening at the Barnes house, the chaos, the disorder, the distortion of life. What do you feel like when you leave? Well, you got to ask the question, what have the disciples been through? Just listen real quick. Listen to what they've been through. They've been through the Lord's Supper already. After supper, Jesus took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and he washed their feet. Already, Jesus has announced to them his departure, that he's going to leave them. He's commanded them to love one another, and he's told them that I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's encouraged them to pray over and over again, and then he has given them advanced warnings. He said, You're gonna, somebody here is going to betray me. He said, you, Peter, are going to deny me. And I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you know that I knew. And he's told them about persecution, right? He's told them this, and he says, I'm telling you this in advance so that when it happens. Imagine how you're feeling after dinner with Jesus. Everybody thinks, I want to go eat dinner with Jesus. Well, you kind of read this, and you go, do you want to eat dinner with Jesus? It's a little bit overwhelming at this point. 
And then Jesus says that now the hour is coming, and he's going to say before we get to the end of this passage, the hour has come. Well, that's a loaded word. At the very beginning of Luke or John 13, the gospel writer says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, loved his own until the end, right? John thinks that this hour is the point of this passage because he started the whole discussion off on focusing on this hour. Jesus has already told them that the hour is coming when those who persecute them and even those who kill his disciples will think that they're serving God. John 16, 2 and 3. So what are the disciples thinking right now? I mean, can we all agree that they're pretty overwhelmed? Can we all agree that this supper with Jesus has been more than they bargained for? Can we all agree that they're wondering what is happening? Well, I want us to see two things about this passage. I want us to see these two results that happen because the hour is coming. These two things that Jesus says is going to happen because the hour is coming. And then... I want us to see the realities of that hour. The two results because the hour is coming and then the realities of that hour, okay? That's what I want us to look at. So look at these two results. Just look at Jesus' words. Again, John 16, 25 through 33, 903 on those blue pew Bibles. Jesus says this, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So what does he say about when that hour comes? He's going to stop using figures of speech, and he's actually going to speak plainly. That, that idea is speech that conceals nothing. That up until this point, you've had to lean into what Jesus is saying, going, what exactly is he saying here? What is he talking about in his words? We've seen it over and over, right? The other time that John uses this language is when Jesus describes himself in chapter 10 as the good shepherd. And you kind of have to lean in and go, what does he mean, the good shepherd? And the good shepherd, the sheep hear his voice. What's he talking about? And it causes you to either lean in or lean out and go, dude doesn't make any sense. I'm walking away, right? The synoptics use the word parable to describe this Hebrew word, but not in John. The idea of parable is never used. This idea of figures of speech is what is used. Language and words where truth is revealed that cause you to either lean in or lean out. Right? The Proverbs of King Solomon. This, this idea of you hearing something and saying, are you going to try to figure it out? Are you going to dismiss it outright? Jesus said, the time is coming when no longer is there going to be figures of speech, but I'm going to speak to you plainly, and not just speech that's plain, but speech that is about the Father that is plain. Speech that reveals the very heart of the Father. He says it's coming. It's going to happen. And the question that is always before us in parables and in speech that isn't very clear is, are you going to listen and attempt to understand or dismiss it and say, not for me. 
Jesus says that's the first result of the hour coming. But he says there's a second result. And listen to how he says it. He says, in that day. In other words, all the time that follows this hour coming. In that day, he says in verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Jesus says that in that day, following the hour, we will ask the Father in Jesus' name. Nathan talked about the idea of asking in Jesus' name. Let me ask you a question. When you pray, do you end your prayer and I pray this in the name of Jesus? Did you know that you and I have been given that right? And maybe I would ask you, why would you ever not pray in the name of Jesus if you're a Christian? In the name of Jesus, in the same orientation that Christ would pray in, for the things that Christ would long for, the invitation to use His name, hey, God, the Father, Jesus sent me. I'm coming in His name. Nathan pointed us back to this whole idea of abiding in Christ, right? The very things that Jesus longs for, I long for. And so I can pray for them in Jesus' name, right? The confidence that that would give us to pray in the name of Christ. But Jesus doesn't focus on that. Jesus focuses on the access to the Father. And He says that in that day you will pray in My name. And I'm not saying to you that I'm going to ask the Father on your behalf. You're going to ask the Father directly because the Father loves you. Let's stop and think about this a minute. Did I convince you that the disciples are overwhelmed? Did I convince you that it has been a long evening at Jesus' table? Did I convince you that the institution of the Lord's Supper and this most unbelievable act of Jesus washing His disciples' feet and all that He has had to tell His disciples is overwhelming for them? And what is He focusing on? That in that day when things are plain, you are going to pray to the Father directly because He loves you. Do you see Jesus' kindness in giving them such confidence? He uses one more figure of speech, doesn't He? He says it in verse 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. How do you know that that's a figure of speech? Well, it doesn't say how Jesus came into the world, does it? How He left the Father and came into the world. Born incarnate of the Virgin Mary, right? It doesn't go into explaining that. This is a figure of speech that you have to lean into. And then what does it mean that He is going out of the world and returning to the Father? But the disciples in this sense of being overwhelmed, go, ah, now we understand. Did you hear James read it? Wasn't it good? Ah, he said, now we understand. Listen to what he says in verse 29. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly. No, he's not. It's not the hour yet for him to speak plainly. 
He's speaking in figure of speech. But the disciples are overwhelmed. And they're saying, look, now you're speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus just used figure of speech. This image that you have to lean into and go, what does he mean he's leaving the world and going to God? Listen, there's a danger to trying to understand and engage Jesus apart from this hour. And those of you who know the gospel know that this hour is the passion of Christ. His betrayal, his trial, his execution, his being nailed to the cross, his death on the cross, and his burial in the tomb, his death that would be followed by his resurrection. The danger of engaging and seeking to understand Jesus apart from this moment of the cross is that the focus becomes on our own self-assessment. Now we know. (laughs) The disciples go, now we get it. We know. And that we also focus on knowledge. Now we know that what? You, Jesus, know all things. Did Jesus come to them to impress them with his knowledge of all things? Jesus did not come to impress us with his knowledge of all things. But when we engage Christ apart from the hour, apart from the cross, our attempt is to use all knowledge that we think Jesus could give us just to make sense of our lives. My second question for you is this as we turn the page from these two results. When are we most likely to engage Jesus? without the cross in view. Let me ask it one more time. When are we most likely to engage Jesus? Yes, I'm talking about prayer. When are we most likely to engage Jesus without the cross in view? Isn't it when we are also overwhelmed? Isn't it when we are trying to make sense of everything that's around us? Honestly, when I thought about myself, isn't it when I am praying for stuff and outcomes and relief of suffering? How often I engage Jesus without the cross in view. Why is Jesus saying that these are the two results that are dependent on the realities of the hour, of the cross, of Jesus' death and resurrection for us, the hour that has come? Listen to how he talks to the disciples. Jesus answers them in verse 31. Do you now believe? What does this remind you of? If you just flipped back about a page and a half, you would read when Peter tells Jesus, I'm not going to deny you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. I will even die for you. And what does Jesus say to Peter in response? Will you lay your life down for me? Question mark? Jesus here looks at his disciples and he says, do you now believe the hour hasn't come? But listen to what he says. 
Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What are the realities of the cross that the disciples have not yet even begun to imagine that Jesus is about to be crucified? Well, the first reality there is that the disciples are going to fail, right? They're going to be scattered. Jesus uses this word straight out of Zechariah. When you strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, right? The failure of the disciples to really understand what's going on at the cross is made known in their scattering, in their denial, in their betrayal of him, in their dispersion from him. But that's not all that is emphasized in what Jesus says in these realities of the hour. The second reality is Jesus' obedience. I'm going to be left alone, he says. I'm not going anywhere when this happens. I'm going to be there. Jesus' obedience is a big reality about the cross that we cling to, right? It's not just that Jesus is obedient, but that the faithfulness of God to Jesus will be known there. And you scratch your head and you go, how is that possible? Jesus says, I'm not going to be alone. Don't worry, you're not going to be with me. You're going to have left me alone, but the Father won't. The Father will be with me. Think about that for a minute. The Father present with Jesus at the cross. Isaiah supports this. When Isaiah says it was the will of the Father to crush his son, God was faithful at the cross. And not only that, but is there at the cross where the glory of the Father is made known. The song that we sang, the cross of Jesus, the trysting place, the place of romance, where the grace of God and the justice of God come together and meet, and God is glorified for what he enacts at the cross, which is justice that all who believe in him are not condemned. I almost want to ask you, as Dan asked you, would you say amen? That is what the glory of the cross is about. That there, the realities of that hour is that God is going to glorify himself at the cross. And Jesus is saying, until that happens, everything that's been mystery up until this point is not going to make sense. But at the cross is where life makes sense again. After this, you will understand plainly about the Father. And after this, you will pray with the confidence that God loves you. Jesus says the result of these realities is that in me, you're going to have peace. 
mean, already in chapter 14, Jesus has described what the peace of the world is like. It's fading. It's always borrowed in oppression from someone else. There is no peace in this world that doesn't have the oppression of someone else involved in it because this world is broken. And the idea of peace in this world is always myopic. Your view has to become so tight and so small to dismiss everything else. But Jesus says, no, not so in me. I don't give you peace as the world gives. I give complete peace. Shalom, all things rightly related, right? But the Christian is stuck in between in Jesus and in the world because what does Jesus promise in the world? Tribulation, trouble, persecution, suffering. Some of it has to do with being identified with Jesus. Some of it has to do with being in a broken world. Christians are in both. But Jesus ends this by saying, take heart. I couldn't find this anywhere else in the book of John. Take heart. Mita has a devotional that I don't even have courage to read. And you want to know what the title of her devotional is that sits right next to her bed? Courage, dear heart. And guess what the tagline is? Not the tagline, but the, you know, the, the rest of the title. It says, letters to a weary world. Are you weary? Are you overwhelmed? Are you in a place where you need to pray believing that God loves you? Then what we have to do is live in light of the hour that Jesus is talking about because these realities matter. Finally, he says, I have overcome the world. For those again who have read closely, John, know that John chapter 1 actually says that the darkness has not overcome the light. Guess what? Different word, not the same word. In John 1, the word is that the darkness hasn't understood it or seized the truth of the light or the darkness hasn't grasped it. But here Jesus says, I have overcome the world. I have conquered everything that is in opposition, the sum total of everything that is opposed to God. Jesus says in the cross, I have reversed the curse. And again, those of you who are from Boston should say amen because you know the way that we understand reverse the curse, right? Thank you to the Red Sox in 2004. Jesus is saying, in the hour of the cross, the entirety of the curse of sin has been reversed and that death is swallowed by joy. Evil is not made excuses for but it is swallowed up, as Nathan told us, by joy. How does that change the way that you and I pray? How does the cross change the way that we pray? How does living in light of that hour, living in that day, how does it change the way we pray? Let's work at it backwards. How about recognizing the glory of God? That in the cross, God revealed Himself more fully than anywhere else in all of Scripture. His self-revelation of who He is 
a prayer-hearing, answering God, a God who forgives, a God whose mercy and whose justice is not in conflict, but is completely satisfied that washes over us. What would our prayer look like if we believed this? Would we lead with praise? Would we leave with gratitude? His love is on display at the cross. That book that I told you was going to be on the back table, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church, Jack Miller says in it, he's known very few people who are motivated by the love of God who do not have confidence in His love for them. Very few people who are motivated in their lives, I want God to be glorified in my life, who do not know God's love for them. What does that mean for you and me? Are you praying for God's glory on a regular basis? You go, no, that has not been my prayer this week, Bradley. It didn't make my top three. Did I tell you that it made my top three? It didn't, church. You need to pray for me. What do we need then? to be convinced of God's love for us. Where do you go to be convinced of that? The cross. The hour. What about the faithfulness of the Father? The Apostle Paul picks up on this, right? He says it in Romans 8. Look, if, Jesus, if God gave you Jesus, if He gave His only Son for you, will He not also give you everything that you need? Well, that's, that's an amazing way to pray according to God's faithfulness. God, in the midst of this struggle that I'm in, I'm going to remember that you've given me Jesus. And if you have given me Jesus, then surely you, God, are going to give me everything that I need. The guy who was my predecessor at Harvard, at RUF, said, never pray without your Bible open. That's a great way of praying about God's faithfulness right there, isn't it? How about the obedience of Jesus? Wow, look at that. Almost pushed it off. How about the obedience of Jesus? That at the cross, Jesus was obedient even to death. He bore our sins. He died for you and for me. And we get to pray in His name. Not only does that give us confidence in our prayer, and listen, I am telling you, Christians, you get to pray in the name of Jesus. You get to say, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. That ought to give you confidence. But do you know what else it does for us? Because of Jesus' obedience, it ought to convict us a little bit. And it ought to critique our prayers. It ought to critique Bradley's prayers for stuff. Really, what does my desire for stuff have to do with Jesus' obedience and making sure that the Father is glorified? His obedience to pray for God's glory, that it would produce fruit that has eternal life to it. To pray for the things that would cause other people to glorify God. That would be an amazing thing. And then finally, how does it change the way we pray when we see the failure of, our, of the disciples? Well, look, it's got to lead you and me to a degree of humility, doesn't it? Doesn't it have to lead us to a degree of humility in our prayers? Doesn't it have to ask us what our real grasp of the present circumstances are? 
Maybe even for you and for me, not only a willingness to repent, but quickness to repent. Yeah, I could give you an example every week, but this is my example of my repentance this week. Mita and I are driving along these nieces of ours that came up to visit us this weekend, and this one niece wanted to control the radio the whole time. Now, she got on my good side because she said she loved my truck, and anybody who gets in you know, a near 40-year-old car and says you love it is, is on my good side. But this girl wanted to control the radio, and she controlled it the whole time. And we listened to everything. We listened to everything from country music to rap to, to rock and roll. Her taste in music, I was shocked. And she's only fifth grade. And she has a voice like an angel. So you kind of want to hear her sing all these things. And she picked this one song. And she goes, Uncle Bradley, you're going to like this song. And I was like, yeah, I don't know about that. And we were listening. Only a couple of them had to turn off. And she turned to this one as we were entering into the circle of death here in Newton just last night. And I was thinking about the failure of the disciples, and I was, I was thinking about my own failure and my, my need for humility to really govern the things that I think I can change and hope for about the future. And this song comes on, and I could tell right away that it was going to go slow, and I wasn't sure that I liked it, and the words started coming out, and then... I almost put on the brakes and said, you have to start that song over again because the title of the song was Thy Will Be Done. And I started listening to it. And I want you to listen to what this woman named Hillary Scott wrote. She said, speaking of God, I know you're good, but this doesn't feel good right now. And I know you think of things I could never think about. It's hard to count it all joy. I'm distracted by the noise. Just trying to make sense of all your promises. Sometimes I got to stop and remember that you're God and I'm not. So thy will be done. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Like a child on my knees, all that comes to me is thy will be done. And listen to this bridge. I know you see me. I know you hear me. Lord, your plans are for me. Goodness you have in store. Therefore, thy will be done. Jesus told the disciples, in the day that follows the hour, you will pray in my name and you will pray straight to the Father because he loves you. CTK Newton, do you know that your father loves you? How do you and I pray in light of the cross? One of the things we do is join our voices in the way that Jesus taught us how to pray, which is what we're going to do now.
And then we go to the table to be fed. Amen? Let's do that together.